0: Good evening, everyone. As we discussed last week, American psychiatry in the 1970s was in the midst of an emergency, caused by unreliable diagnoses. Insurance companies, other doctors, and the public at large were all attacking psychiatrists, and it would take the work of one Robert Spitzer to help fix it. Robert Spitzer was born in White Plains, New York, all the way back in 1932. Even at a young age, Spitzer was clearly interested in scientifically approaching human behavior. As told by Spitzer himself, quote, When I was 12 years old, I went to summer camp for two months, and I developed considerable interest in some of the female campers. So I made a graph on the wall of my feelings towards five or six girls. I charted my feelings as they went up and down over the course of summer camp. I also recall being bothered by the fact that I was attracted to girls I didn't like very much, so maybe my graph helped me make sense of my feelings. Quite an interesting kid, Spitzer was, but it gets even more interesting. At the age of 15, Spitzer asked his parents to try therapy with a follower of Wilhelm Reich, who was a uh, loosely defined therapist of the time that claimed with essentially no evidence that a universal life force called Orgones could be manipulated to heal people. Spitzer, like many a young teenage boy, myself included, just wanted to understand girls better. Spitzer's parents refused though, correctly assuming that the therapy was nonsense. However, scientists will be scientists. And so he snuck out to attend weekly sessions with the therapist. I don't feel like he's doing teenage rebelliousness quite right. For years, he let therapists move his limbs around and tried out a machine called an orgone accumulator. He persuaded one therapist to let him try out the accumulator and spent many hours in what is essentially a wooden booth. After a year of trying, though, he didn't feel any different, and set out to expose ergonomy for the sham that it was. In 1953, he was a Cornell University undergraduate, and he devised a number of experiments to test orgone theory. After eight experiments, he concluded that, quote, careful examination of the data in no way proves or even hints at the existence of orgone energy, end quote, which is the most sciency way of saying it's a bunch of crap. Like most undergraduates, his work went basically nowhere. He submitted his paper to the American Journal of Psychiatry, but the editors rejected it. However, unlike most undergraduates, Spitzer a few months later was then visited in his dorm room by an official from the Food and Drug Administration. At the very least, I definitely didn't get any visits from the FDA in my undergraduate years. They wanted an expert witness to help take down Orgone theory, which was being pushed by practitioners as a cure for cancer. He must have been very excited as a young scientist, although ultimately his testimony wasn't needed. It also serves for us as a revealing example of Spitzer's willingness to challenge authority with hard evidence. Spitzer then went on to study medicine at the New York University, and then began training in psychiatry at Columbia University, which was one of the most influential psychoanalytic institutes in America of the time. While Spitzer was at first open to the ideas of psychoanalysis, when he started treating his own patients, he felt that his patients rarely seemed to improve. Despite his objections, he carried on with the practice, hoping for a new opportunity, and in 1966, one appeared. While grabbing lunch in the cafeteria, a senior Columbia faculty member named Ernest Grunberg met up with Spitzer, and over sandwiches offered him a job. Well, kind of. They needed a note-taker and editor to help out uh, on an unpaid basis with the creation of the DSM-2. Being perhaps a little eccentric and actually interested in the work of classifying mental illness, Spitzer took to the work very well, and was quickly promoted to an actual member of the DSM task force, being the youngest member of the team at 34 years old. Now, ordinarily, this new position on a very specific task force for a manual that, if you'll recall, no one really used at the time, would not have led to podcasts being made about the man decades later. But in this instance, Spitzer was given an assignment that thrust him into the limelight. Figure out if homosexuality belongs in the DSM. If you'll recall, at this time period, homosexuality was listed in the DSM as a mental disorder. Psychiatrists attempted to treat it with hypnosis, or aversion therapy involving electric shocks, even to the genitals. Ouch. But also, this was the 60s and the 70s, so activism was all around, and gay activists began to protest psychiatry meetings in particular. Spitzer was not an activist by any means, but he was impressed with the efforts of activists, and felt, as good scientists do, that it warranted discussion and debate using data. At the next American Psychiatric Association meeting, Spitzer assembled a panel of psychiatrists as well as a well-known activist to debate whether homosexuality should be considered a mental disorder. The event was covered by the press, and generally it was felt that the activists had won out. A few months later, Spitzer was brought by that activist to a secret meeting of gay psychiatrists. He was surprised to find that several were well-known chairs of psychiatry departments, and one was even a former American Psychiatric Association president. They in turn were also surprised, because they didn't know Spitzer was coming, and all of them feared he would blow their covers. However, the activist vouched for Spitzer, and he was able to have conversations with these various men. They showed him that there was no credible data that homosexuality was caused by some disease or by impaired mental functioning. And by the end of the meeting, Spitzer was compelled to remove homosexuality from the next edition of the DSM. However, Spitzer now ran into an issue. On the one hand, psychiatry was already under fire for being unreliable and making up diagnoses. Just deleting homosexuality without clear reasoning from the list would open the doors to further critiques of other diagnoses. However, maintaining homosexuality as a disorder could harm people who were mentally healthy but just happened to be gay. He needed some way to justify unclassifying homosexuality as a mental disorder, for which he came up with the idea of subjective distress. His argument was that if there was no evidence that a patient's condition caused them any emotional distress or impaired their ability to function, and if a patient said they were well, then no label of illness should be imposed. And if you asked gay people, they didn't feel unwell just for being attracted to the opposite sex. With this principle, homosexuality wasn't a disorder, because gay people didn't feel distressed by it, while other mental illnesses still met the criteria. A patient with depression is clearly not feeling well. A seriously ill schizophrenic might insist they are well, but be unable to maintain relationships or work, indicating a lack of function. As a result, Spitzer proposed that homosexuality should be replaced with a new diagnosis of sexual orientation disturbance, which was where being homosexual might cause distress in a patient, and a patient sought help. This unfortunately left the door open for attempts at sexual orientation conversion therapy, which we know today is harmful and ineffective, but at the time it was still a major step forward. Spitzer, for the record, came to regret his decision because of the way it allowed for conversion therapy to continue, but I'm not sure it would be fair honestly to say that he could have known better at the time. While he expected that this proposal would be controversial, Spitzer instead was generally met with praise. He had created a new idea which yielded a nice compromise, making activists happy while deflecting anti-psychiatrists. If you'll recall from the end of last week in 1973, the American Psychiatric Association had an emergency meeting to figure out what to do about their credibility crisis. They decided that transforming the DSM was the next step, and Spitzer was immediately interested. Seeing how he had handled the issue of homosexuality in the DSM, the Board of Trustees appointed Spitzer to head the new task force to create the DSM-3. And that's it for this week. I thought we would get a little bit further in time, but I found Spitzer such an interesting person that I ended up dedicating this episode to his origin story. But next week, we'll get into how he built the DSM-3 and the changes that came with it. As always, thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, please let me know with the links in the show notes, or let a friend know with your words. Thanks also to my editor, Jojo Tang, my cover artist Angie Lee, and Muse Open for this music.